All right, I want to invite you to turn to Esther, Esther chapter 9, Esther chapter 9, we'll start in verse 20, and we're actually going to finish the book, chapter 10 is only three verses, um, so we'll start with Esther chapter 9, verse 20, and this is the new order. Um, we all do long for a world where things are as they should be. Um, we see things that are not the way that they should be all the time. We see innocent people um, that, that seem to suffer, and, and they seem to suffer at the hands of people that are guilty. They are, um, some way or another, they are wrong, and we see that all the time. We want righteous rulers who will not seek their own gain. That's one thing that we look for is people um, that, that, are, that are, whether they be our rulers, like as in politicians or, or presidents or senators or whatever, or even the, the, our employers, our bosses. We look for people that will not be um, going after their own gain. They're not looking out for themselves. They are looking for the good of the people that they have been entrusted with. Um, we want that. We also want to live in a land of plenty where all the resources aren't controlled by a very few. We look for those things. We want a world in where sin, um, where sin is punished and righteousness is rewarded. Those are things that we look for. Those are things that we want in a world. Um, this world is not like that yet. In this world, people get away with doing bad. People take away from those that have a little bit. In this world, it is the unrighteous that tend to rise to the top and rule uh, everyone else. In this world, it's not like that. But there have been some occasions where God has given us a glimpse of what that would be like if it were to come to pass. This final passage in Esther gives us one such glimpse. So, if you'll remember all along... Um, the people, the, the Jews that have lived in the Persian Empire have been, you know, under leadership of the Persians, but Haman was there. And Haman was evil and he had all kinds of evil plans for the Jews. And after this big reversal, things change and God gives us a glimpse of what it could be like if righteous people were in charge, if things were done in a more just and fair manner. And so that's what we get to see this morning. So the sermon in a sentence is this. All God's people look forward to a day of celebration when all things are set right. We all know that there are some scores to settle, some debts to pay, things like that. We look for the day when God sets all those things right. That's what we're looking for. So look at Esther chapter 9, and we're going to read verse 20 uh, through chapter 10, verse 3. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same uh, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been, had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts uh, of food to one another and gifts to the poor." So the Jews accepted that they, uh, what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamathida, um, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, uh, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return 
on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined with them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abhel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their uh, fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Xerxes imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced himself, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Okay, so we start with this new celebration. They've established a new holiday, if you will, a, a time to remember what had been done for them. So just as a reminder, this, this total reversal had taken place. First of, first of all, Haman paid for his crimes. His, or his sins, anyway, whether they're crimes or not, that's depend on the law, but, but he had planned to kill all the Jews, and he had had a certain day, it was the 13th day of Adar, which was um, the, the day that he had chosen through the casting of lots with the, that they called pure, which were like knuckle bones of an animal, so um, they, had been, they had been waiting for that day of destruction the Jews had for months at a time. And then Haman himself paid for his sins because the king found out of, about his plot and that it affected his queen, who he loved, Esther, and so Haman was killed. And then there was a new decree that went out through Mordecai that the Jews could defend themselves on this day. They could actually fight back and they could save themselves if they so chose and were able to, and they did. And so on that day, instead of all the Jews being killed, it was all the enemies of the Jews who were killed. And so that was a major reversal. So after the breathtaking reversal uh, that the Lord had performed for the Jews in Persia, Mordecai declares that the days of the reversal will always be remembered as days of celebration. And so that's what a lot of the last part of chapter 9 is about, is talking about the celebration, reminding the people of the celebration and why it is to be. Most scholars believe this is why the book of Esther was written, is to explain why they have the holiday of Purim, to help people understand why it is. And so and Mordecai goes into great detail here explaining this. Um, for a few months, 
the, the Jews did sit under a death sentence. So imagine when the decree goes out, they're told you're, you're going to be ex, you're going to be killed. People are going to rise up. They're going to kill you. They're going to take your possessions. And you live with that knowledge for quite some time. Even in the book of Esther, it says that they, they, they mourned, they lamented, um, they were full of sorrow. And so you can imagine looking toward that month and thinking, this is the month I will die. That would be a very difficult life for you. That would be a very difficult time. And that's definitely what they were going through when Haman sent out his decree. Then Mordecai sends out his decree. You can band together. You can defend yourself. And anybody that you kill, it won't be illegal. You can protect yourself. And so then they had several months to prepare. But can you imagine how anxious you would be? Knowing that, that in a certain number of months, people are still going to rise up and try to kill you, but you are able to defend yourself. You're able to fight back. That would still be a pretty scary situation to be in, to be totally honest with you. And so that's what their life was like. It was anxiety. It was, it was, it was nerves. It was getting ready for this whole day. Um, but when, when the time came, they were able to stand against those that were attacking them. Uh, and so the great uh, relief that the Jews received from their deliverance led to this spontaneous celebration. You can imagine, you're, you're, so, you're so scared, you're so concerned, and all the preparation has been, and finally you succeed, you actually defeat your enemies. It's time to celebrate. It is time to rejoice. And so that's what they began to do. They were celebrating, they were rejoicing, they were giving gifts to one another. Um, that's what it was all about. And I think I shared last week that this holiday is, is still celebrated uh, in Israel today. And it is, it is a time that they do still rejoice and they remember what God did for them during that time. Now, Mordecai formalized that celebration and decreed that it should happen every year so that the people would not forget their deliverance. So every year... On the, on the year, both days was days of celebration. They gave gifts. They gave gifts to the poor. They rejoiced. That was what it was all about. This celebration was called Purim because of the way that Haman had chosen um, the day of the destruction of the Jews. Now, why was it important to Mordecai and, and, to, and to, to Esther that this day be remembered? Why was it important? Well, one of the things we have to realize is that this was a breathtaking reversal. This was something that God did that no other way could have happened except God did it. And the Jews would not face you know, anything like that, but they would continue to face enemies as they went forward. And they needed to remember. They needed to know because they had a holiday that reminded them that God could save them. God could save them from the Persians. God could save them from the Greeks. God could save them from the Romans. God could save them from the Germans and the Russians and all the other people that have that threatened them throughout the years. God could save them from all of them. That's what they needed to know. That was why they needed to remember Purim all this time. So Queen Esther even writes a letter adding her authority um, to establish this new feast day for the Jews so that it would live on through the generations. And you read this and you're like, well, why do they have to be so official about establishing this as a holiday? With the Jews, these, these holy days, these days of feasts and banquets, they were established, all of them, except for this one, pretty much by Moses. There were some that came along after, but the first set that they had came from Moses and came from the first five books of the Bible. So adding on a new holiday was a big deal, and it was something that they did through, um, through this royal decree of Esther and also through the decree of Mordecai himself, and it was all in memory of what God had done. So it was very important that the people remembered the deliverances that God had given them over their enemies because Haman would not be the last enemy that they would face. If you are in a fight, 
and you know you've won a fight like that before, it helps. And that's, what that, that, that's basically what this celebration was about, reminding them that they had won that fight, that God had won that for them. So they would need to know that God was able to deliver them from any circumstance and at any time. That was very, very important for them. So this celebration, I've said this already, but it didn't remain exclusive to the Persian Jews. It made its way uh, to modern-day Israel and is still a wonderful celebration of God's deliverance even to this day. Now, for us, what, is this, what, what, what about for us? It's important for us to remember that many times God has delivered his people so that we too can look on, on the future with hope despite our circumstances. We know that God has done many marvelous deliverances. He has done things that are beyond anything that, that science or anybody could explain. You, you, you think about the Exodus, you, you think about this particular story right here. You think about the way that God led his people back out of the Babylonian captivity over to Israel and reestablished um, Israel as a, as a country and, and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the city. You think about those things and you know that God has done these things. We've seen these examples. Well, what do we live in now? We don't necessarily live in God's kingdom in America. That's not what we live in. Um, but what we do live in is a world that right now is dominated by sin. It is, a, it, is, it is ran by people who are mostly interested in themselves and their own personal gain. And so the way that they live and the way that they dictate actually it has a negative effect on most people that live in the world. And so do we need to be delivered from that kind of leadership and those kinds of rulers? Yes, we, we do. There's coming a day when that will happen. We believe that God will do that. But until that day, we hang on to the hope that God has done it before and he will do it again. That's what we need to remember. Because otherwise, you look at this world and you say, well, what difference can we really make? We're not as powerful or as rich or as, as strong as, as these other folks. And so they're going to have their way. We're never going to have our way. There's coming a day when God will have his own way. So that was what that celebration was about. And when you think about the, the days that we would celebrate our own deliverance, we just finished one, Christmas. Christmas was when Jesus came to this earth. And because God is a God of his word, from the moment Jesus entered into history, the victory was won. And then when we get ready in the next couple of months, we'll celebrate Easter. Once again, celebrating, remembering the deliverance that God had for us. So we have these same sort of days, holy days, that we should set aside and celebrate the Lord. Now, for the new order, the, the new way of things, that's what kind of chapter 10 shows us is just very briefly the way that things were after these events. And so after the events of, of, of Haman and then after the events of that, that day in which they had to defend themselves and protect themselves, what was the world like? Well, it does say that the king imposed taxes on the land. That's, that's pretty typical of kings. That's pretty much their job. Um, and then it says all the things that he did, they're recorded in the, the, the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. Um, and so what, what the writer is saying is not only that, but all this stuff with Haman, all this stuff with Mordecai, all these things were recorded in that book. So it's linking it to history. And then it says, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So for most of the book, um, it's the evil Haman that has tremendous influence over King Xerxes, um, and that's a detriment to the Jews. Because if you'll remember, Haman was second in command. 
He could talk to the king. He could convince the king of things. He didn't have to be very specific about his plans. The king just gave him the signet ring and let him go. Xerxes did seem to be very easy to be influenced. Even at the very beginning of the book, his wife defies him, and he goes to his advisors to ask what he should do. He doesn't just react. Maybe that was good, but he definitely was influenced by others. And then as we go through the book, he continues to take advice from his advisors. And when his advisors are people like Haman, that's bad advice. And so the whole book almost has that as, as the setting. But then when things change, when everything is reversed, Mordecai is that second in command. And so when the king would look for advice, he would then go to Haman. I mean, he would then go to Mordecai. He would then go to the man that had, had delivered his people or helped deliver his people. So that was going to be better for the Jews. So in the final words of this book, we find that Mordecai has risen to a position second only to the king himself. <clears throat> Knowing how Xerxes was, Mordecai ruled the land. Mordecai ruled the Persian Empire. That's probably not something that you were taught in your history classes in school, that there was once a Jew that ruled the Persian Empire. But very likely, Mordecai had that kind of power, at least in a domestic sense. Even if Xerxes was more interested in what was going on in the wars and the expansion and all that they were doing, Mordecai would have ruled the day-to-day -day stuff. So, although the people were still subject to the Persian Empire, they were not necessarily free. Uh, and, and you should know, in, in, in the Persian Empire, the only free person was Xerxes himself, the king himself. Everybody else was a slave. That was the way that they viewed it. But they had different degrees of freedom and different degrees of, of wealth and all that kind of stuff. And so Mordecai was immensely powerful, even though he was a servant of the king. Many of the Jews, they were also servants of the king, but they had great um, prosperity. They had safety. They had peace during this time because Mordecai watched out for them. Much like, um, or well, before that, one thing that we can say is that they had this kind of security knowing that he was there to watch out for them and every governmental policy that was made by his hand was actually for their benefit. So much like the Hebrews that would have lived in Egypt during the time of Joseph, remember Joseph was a very powerful man and during that time Joseph watched out for the Hebrews and it was after Joseph was dead that things began to change. These Jews would have, would have had a very good time of it in Persia because there was someone watching out for them. So we know that God is able to place righteous people in places of leadership to help his people. When we look at America, there have been times where God has raised righteous people to stand and to lead. There have been times where we've seen where we don't think that the person is so righteous that is in charge. Either time, we know that God has a plan and that God has a purpose. God is doing something. And so we don't doubt God for a second, no matter who is in charge. Mordecai only came to power after much prayer and fasting from the people, from himself and from the Jews that lived in Persia. So remember that, Haman, Haman had his plot, he had his plan, he was going to destroy the Jews. Mordecai and all the people, all the Jews, once they received that decree, they began to pray, they began to fast, and that's when things began to change because they began to look to the Lord. So it was also after a very courageous and selfless act of Esther, that she basically put her life on the line by approaching the king unannounced and uninvited. She approached the king, and the king received her, but he didn't have to. And so that was another very big thing that happened before Mordecai took power, before things began to change. You know, if we would want to see a new order 
in America, something different than what we have now, it's going to require prayer. It's going to require fasting. And it's going to require us being courageous to stand for God's Word, even though we really are and really should be strangers in a strange land. We should not be familiar. We should not be comfortable. We should not be accepting of the ways that things are in this country. We shouldn't. They should be strange to us. The things that are said, the way that people can act nowadays, the way that, that people present themselves, um, the way that people demand that, that we speak and the way that we identify them, all of those kinds of things, that shouldn't be comfortable for us. That should not be something that we, that we just look over. If you turn on your TV, um, and, and I watched football games some this weekend, if you, if you turn on your TV and you're watching something and then all of a sudden it goes to commercial and that commercial is something that you don't approve of, you shouldn't be comfortable with it, you shouldn't be accepting of it. That is wrong. We should be strangers in the strange land. If we want things to be different from the top to the bottom in America, we're going to have to pray, we're going to have to fast, and we're going to have to be courageous to stand for God's Word. Now let's wrap up this, not just this sermon, but also the book of Esther. So the book of Esther leaves us with the vision of God's people prospering under righteous leadership. And isn't that what we all ultimately long for? I don't need to be king. Probably nobody sitting in this room wants to be king or queen. But what we do want is righteous leaders. We want people that will stand up for God, His word, and rule fairly. We know that that's not always the case. We know that it may not be the case in America right now. Many times it is the greedy and the wicked who become our masters. Those that seek an opportunity are the ones that are going to be corrupted a lot of times. But God is able to establish righteous men in leadership. But if He never chooses to do so again in America, we still have the promise of a new future a good and bright future. So I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 and one through 4. And there were plenty of passages I could have chose. This is the one um, that seemed to stick out. Um, the vision of the thousand years had happened. You know, Jesus comes to this earth, rules for a thousand years, rules with uh, Christians for a thousand years. Uh, Satan and, and his host is released one last time. There is one more war, so to speak. And then John begins to describe this new heaven and new earth. Um, and so that's what this passage is. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is coming a day when God himself will rule directly over us, and no sinful man will be able to have power. That will be a wonderful day. That will be a day when we don't have to be suspicious and questioning of our leadership anymore. That will be a day when we can just 
revel in the joy that God is in control, that He is our ruler, that He is our Father. There is coming a day when God will physically come down to earth. He will rule there forever. So whether or not we have a revival or a revitalization or whatever you want to say in America, whether God chooses to do that or not, and I have no idea what His choice will be, but whether He does or not, we know we have a day coming when there will be a city, when there will be a world, when there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying, no more of the things that make this world so awful, all of that will go away. What Esther and the Persian Jews received in part, we will one day receive in full when God sets all things right. Now what you have to realize is that He will set all things right. Those that have been evil will answer for it. Those that have done wrong will answer for it. Even those that have done wrong and been evil in secret and in private, they will answer for it. We must be aware of that. So how do we start this new year? I ask that we start it with celebration because we know that God will establish us as a people and that we will live in a land of blessing and justice. Whether that land be called America or whether that land be called the New Earth. You know what I find interesting is that 400 years ago they called this the New World. They called this place the New World. They came over and they said it was a land full of opportunity. It was a land where people could worship how they wanted to. They could live the way they wanted to. They didn't have to worry about evil kings and all those other things. And if you had studied European history, you'd know why you want to get out of that place. Because there was always wars, and you were always forced to fight in those wars whether you agreed with them or not. And so America was a place where there wouldn't be war. America was a place where you could just live your life. But it has changed. It is different now. America is a land of sin, just like every other country. And we should not be comfortable. We should not be satisfied with the way this world is. And I cannot tell you, because Scripture does not tell you, whether God's going to change America. There are people that probably could make an argument and say, this verse says this. I don't think so. What I believe is that we're looking forward to that day, that day that I just read to you. That day when God brings down this new city onto a new earth and He establishes His reign. That's what I'm looking for. If He makes it good here in the meantime, praise Him all the more. But right now... That's the city that we're looking for. That's the day that we're looking for. So when we go out from here, although we are not pleased or satisfied with the way this world is, we can still celebrate because we can tell people we know that God is going to make things better. And so that joy, that celebration can lead to opportunities to tell people about Jesus himself. And so as we start this new year, people make resolutions. People make all these plans about what they're going to do. And I think those are good things but make sure that on our resolution is, is a resolution to celebrate because God is going to set all things right. Let us celebrate. Even though we don't know when that happens, we don't know the day, we know that it's coming. And so let's celebrate God. Let's celebrate what He's going to do. Let's celebrate how it's going to change because one day He will return and all the things that we think are unfair will be set right because He will reign. And that's the day we're looking forward to. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to gather together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise, the promise of a future where we do not see unrighteous things happen. The promise of a future where we are not led and ruled by unrighteous people. We are not 
affected by the selfishness, the greed, the corruption that is so prevalent in this world. But yet we live in, in a true free state where we just worship you and serve you all day long. I long for that day. We all long for that day. We hope that that day is soon. But we know that it's coming. And that's enough for us. So Father, I pray that you remind us every day of the hope that we have and let us celebrate that hope. Let us be faithful to you. Let us never doubt. Let us never despair. Let us always be going around with that joy in our lives so that we can share it with others. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.